Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, good morning, church. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. Yes, we are officially in the window of time where it is okay to say Merry Christmas. It's not too early. It's not too late. It's like right in the pocket. So, so Merry Christmas. Listen, since I'm pretty sure all of us are going to eat our body weight in cookies in a little bit, um, I'm going to actually invite us to burn a couple of calories together and stand up. So I'd invite you to stand up if you would, would with me. I'm not going to make you do jumping jacks or anything. Um, we are actually going to start our time together in God's Word uh, in this Christmas season by just reading a few narratives from Jesus' life. And it is a long church tradition when you read from the Scriptures to just stand out of reverence for His Word and for who He is. So we're going to just read a couple of passages. I'd invite you to just read along. Here's what I would ask. as you're, I'll read, you listen, and read along on the screen. As you do, uh, take a deep breath. Try to enter into and even feel what the various characters in this narrative might be feeling. All right, let, let that, let that um, seep in a little bit as we read. So we'll start right at the beginning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 it says this. It says, this is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So there's this confusion that Joseph is experiencing, and yet hope, hope springs from that, right? She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's jump ahead to Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is on the cross, um, being crucified, about to lose his life. And he says this, the scriptures say this, At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the despair that he's feeling in that moment. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up on a reed stick so he would drink. But the rest said, wait, wait, wait. Let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. What, what a depth of isolation and despair Jesus is experiencing in that moment. On the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. And in Luke chapter 24, he meets with two men who are on a journey to Emmaus. 
And the passage reads like this. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. I can imagine he's got like a little smirk on his face, right? Like, what, what things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. And this all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were all at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's this tension in these disciples' heart between this idea that they had heard that Jesus was risen and the hope the hope on the one side and the sadness and the despair on the other. You can take your seats. Thank you for standing for a moment or two. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. I had hoped that I would have found a new job by now. We had hoped that we would get to spend Christmas with our family this year. I had hoped that I would have found that special someone to share my life with. We had hoped that our marriage would have survived, or at least have been better than this. We had hoped that we'd be pregnant or have a family by now. We had hoped the cancer would have gone away. We had hoped our loved one, who we miss so dearly, would still be with us this Christmas. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. The name for that feeling of loss and despair and sadness is disappointment. And for many of us, Christmas that this time of year, it brings those feelings of loss and despair and sadness to the surface in a lot of ways. Sometimes this focus on joy, rightly placed, this focus on joy in this season highlights that for us, doesn't it? Or even as we come upon the end of the year and 22 is coming to an end, it highlights for us a sense of disappointment sometimes. Anybody here um, wish they had made more progress in 2022 than they actually did? I'll raise my hand for that right, in one area of your life or another, 
Anyone maybe look back and, and see the end of the year coming and feel like you're in the same spot, spot as you were at the end of 2021? And for many of us, even if it's not like full-on despair and sadness, we all routinely face something that's just a click or two below that, which is called disappointment. A, a sociologist named Walker Percy in 1983, like before Instagram, before social media, did some intensive study on this and reached the conclusion that the primary American emotion is disappointment, this feeling of letdown. In a lot of ways, I think that's even more true today than it was in 1983, uh, you know, in light of social media. So there's this tension between despair and hope. It's like a tug of war that's inside of us. On the one side, our desire for hope, and on the other side, the reality of our grief. And the reason that is, is because all humans need hope. Unlike animals, survival is just not enough for humanity. We need hope that good will come through the pain. So how do we navigate that tension? And the scriptures show us. And Jesus, in fact, modeled it for us. And we start with this powerful reality that God invites us to process our sadness and our despair and our disappointment with him. How do we know this is true? For one thing, it's riddled all over the scriptures. Two-thirds of the Psalms right in the middle of your Bible are Psalms of lament. Psalmists, poets expressing their sadness. And add to that, Jesus modeled it for us himself. So we just read a moment ago this passage of when Jesus was on the cross. And he, one of the last things that he said while he was on the cross, anybody remember what it was or just know from the top of your head? You can shout it right out. We're in this together. Yes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is up there on the cross and he says those words. And what is it that he's doing? He is quoting a Hebrew poem that is found in Psalm 22. This poem written by David in the depth of his sorrow. And we don't know exactly what David's hardship was in Psalm 22. We don't have information about that. What we do know, if you pull this up in your Bible later or on your screen, right at the top of the psalm, it says, uh, this psalm, 22, is to the tune of Doe of the Morning. Anybody know the song, Doe of the Morning? Doe of the Morning. No, that's not it. I just made that up. Nobody knows how Doe of the Morning goes. But what we do know is that Doe of the Morning was a song that was being sung by the Jewish people at that time, which means that Psalm 22, what Jesus quotes on the cross, is something that people would have recognized and would have been meaningful to them. So what was Jesus doing? What was he pointing us toward? Well, uh, in a way, he was doing exactly what was being done by the passenger in seat 29E. Does anybody know about the passenger in seat 29E? Anybody heard of this before? Okay, good. I'm going to get to share this with you. I'm very excited about this. Okay, so uh, a couple months ago, we were traveling to Dallas, my family and I. We were in seat 31, like A, B, and C, and D or something. It was like so far back. Both ways, we got the same row. It's like there was the seats, there was the bathroom, there was like the flight attendance area, and then there was our seats, 31E. So I remember thinking about this seat 29E thing that I'm going to share with you in a minute. And then as I was preparing for today's lesson, um, actually a teacher that I like referenced it. And I was like, I think I need to 
to share this with everybody. So this is great. You're going to love this. Okay. So back in the early 2000s, this thing went viral about this, the seat 29E. Basically, someone who was seated on a Continental Airlines flight at the time, it's now United, um, was seated in 29E, and he wrote this letter to Continental Management. Now, I'm just putting the first page up there so you can read along for that, but then I'm going to read you some more parts of it. You'll have to just listen to me. Uh, it's, this is brilliant, okay? Here's what he says. He says, uh, Dear Continental Airlines, I'm disgusted as I write this note to you about the miserable experience I'm having sitting in seat 29E on one of your aircrafts. As you know, this seat is situated directly across from the laboratory, so close that I can reach out my left arm and touch the door. Anybody ever sat there before? All right, gets better. All right, listen to this. All my senses are being tortured simultaneously. It's difficult to say what the worst part about sitting in 29E really is. Is it the stench of the sanitation fluid that's blown all over my body every 60 seconds when the door opens? Is it the whoosh of the constant flushing? Or is it the passenger's bottoms, that's censored for church, that seems to fit into my personal space like a jigsaw puzzle? I've constructed a stink shield by shoving one end of a blanket into the overhead compartment, and while effective in blocking at least some of the smell and offering a small bit of privacy, the bottom on my body factor has increased. As without my evil glare, passengers feel free to lean up against what they think is some kind of blanketed wall. The next bottom that touches my shoulder will be the last. <laughs> it actually gets better. All right. So he says, I am picturing a boardroom full of executives giving props to the young, promising engineer that figured out how to squeeze an additional row of seats onto this plane by putting them next to the laboratory. I would like to flush his head in the toilet <laughs> that I am close enough to touch and taste from my seat. Putting a seat here was a very bad idea. I think I just heard a man groan in there. Worse yet, I paid over $400 for the honor of sitting in this seat. Does your company give refunds? I'd like to go back, where I, back to where I came from and start over. Seat 29E could only be worse if it was located inside the bathroom. I wonder if my clothing will retain this sanitizing odor. What about my hair? I feel, this is great, I feel like I'm bathing in a toilet bowl of blue liquid and there is no man in a little boat to save me. I am filled with deep hatred for your plane designer <laughs> and a general dis-ease. Uh, this general dis-ease may last for hours. Okay, he wraps up like this. He says, we are finally descending and soon I will be able to tear down the stink shield, but the scars will remain. <laughs> I suggest that you initiate immediate removal of this seat from all your crafts. Just remove it and leave the smoldering brown hole empty. A good place for sturdy, non-absorbing luggage maybe, but not for human cargo. Okay, man, that guy did not have a good flight, am I right? And I was thinking, man, when I was sitting in 31E, I actually wanted to craft one of these. But look at what it is that he does here. It's, it's, it's brilliant what he does here. What does he do? He's sitting here and he's so frustrated and he's putting voice to what it is that he's feeling. And, and, you know, he does, in fact, ask for something at the end of this. But he doesn't start at the beginning and say, you need to get rid of this seat. 
Instead, he, he brilliantly shares his experience for paragraph after paragraph, how, what he is experiencing. And then at, at last, he says, you got to get rid of this seat. <laughs> this, is, this is not good for anybody. Listen, what he is doing there is not unlike what we see in Psalm 22. It's not unlike what the psalmist is doing. The thing that Jesus quotes while he's hanging on the cross. Let's take a look at this as we are invited to process our despair, just like Jesus modeled for us. Right at the top of this poem that Jesus quotes from the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift up my voice, but I find no relief. Do you see the depth of that despair? He is, he's saying, God, why are you so far away? And li like I said, we don't have a description of what David's circumstance was. But to the extent that this was a song that was being sung to, for everybody, this is something that every one of us can, can resonate with, right? That, that, that there's this sense of, of, of protest. Like, God, why aren't you paying attention to me? And it's not angry. He's not doing it out of anger because look how he starts it. He, he's, when he's referring to Yahweh, to God, he says, my God, out of that relationship with him, he's saying, where are you? Why have you left me alone? He goes on to, to continue this idea of him feeling alone. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. He goes on, he says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me. You see where he's getting at here? He's just articulating how he feels so isolated and alone. And we know what this is like. If you've experienced any amount of tragedy or heart or heartache or hurt, even if your friends and your family gather around you well-intentioned, seeking to love you and care for you, there is still this inner sense of feeling so alone in that, isn't there? And, and he feels like God is failing him. That's why all of these people are mocking him. And listen, we love to come to church and sing, you're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You know that song, right? And that is so beautiful and profound and there's so much truth to that. But would we admit that in our darkest moments, at least on an emotional level, we can feel like God has let us down? And in the middle of his hardship, that's what he's saying. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I know God knows all this stuff. He knows about how I feel. No, 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 no. Look at what David does and what Jesus did. They articulate it. They put words to that hardship. He goes on. He feels so helpless. He says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. Up, um, oh, one more, sorry. He says, um, my enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in like lions. They open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. It's a common Hebrew poetry metaphor where when you're considering like the adversaries or the ones that seem to be bringing you the most harm, they uh, personify them in the form of the most vicious animals that they can think of. A herd of bulls, fierce bulls, lions that, that open their jaws just saying this. He's feeling so helpless in that moment. He goes on. He says, my life is poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's this image of, of fear and his body just like falling apart. 
My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. It's this idea of just being pushed to the ground, face against the dirt. No energy, no vitality, no ability to get up and come out of that place. He's feeling completely isolated and broken and alone, and he puts language to it. And Jesus quotes this poem in his despair. He puts language to what he's feeling. And David, in this poem, finally, after 18 verses of describing his despair and his difficulty and his suffering, finally he turns to ask for hope. And he says, Oh Lord, do not stay far away from me, for you are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaw and from the horns of these wild oxen. Finally, at some point, he looks, and that's it. That's his request, right? He looks to the one who has the ability, the one who's the source of hope to rescue him from this hardship. And as I looked at that, as I looked at this psalmist's journey and the one that Jesus quotes, I couldn't help but think, if, if, what if, what if hidden within our disappointment, hidden within our despair, is a secret gift? A secret gift that reorients and recenters our hope that we tend to place into the wrong things? What if it's a signal from our body, like we talked about with the check engine light? What if that disappointment and the things that are described in Psalm 22 is a signal from our body that we have put our hope in the wrong things? And it's a secret invitation, a gentle invitation for us to recenter our hope. It's sort of the inner orientation of our heart towards the future that serves as fuel for the present to reorient that toward God. Hope. Hope must be attached to something. Martin Luther famously said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. Every marriage, every friendship, every business venture, every everything is done by hope. And what we need is what Paul calls a hope that does not disappoint. A hope that does not lead to despair. And family, the good news of Christmas is that God invites us into the hope of Emmanuel, into the hope of God with us. That word Emmanuel, it comes from the Greek rendering of, of two Hebrew words, Emmanuel, which is with us, and El, which is the Hebrew word for God. It is God with us. And I think in order for us to really understand what that hope is, we need to kind of get, clarify our framework for what we're talking about. Kind of consider what hope is in English versus what hope is in the scripture. So in English, when we use the word hope, we often think of a couple things. We'll think of like wishful thinking, right? Like I hope, I hope it's a sunny day today, right? Anybody wake up thinking that? right? Or, uh, you know, I hope I get a good bonus um, this, this holiday season from my office, right? Or, or a lot of times hope is related to what? Like positive thinking, right? Or optimism, right? Like a, the best is yet to come. I'm hoping for a good result uh, in whatever it is that I put my, my hand to. And listen, guys, those are all good things. To have a posture of hopefulness and optimism is, in fact, good. But what the scriptures are talking about when, they, when it uses the word hope is that it is hope in a person. Hope 
in God through Christ. Hope in a person, the person of God, who has the ability to respond to you, to take that hope that you have and, and, and grab hold of you and draw you close. One teacher I like defines it this way. He says, hope is the expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. It's based on the future, but it is fuel for the present. Eugene Peterson says this, hope is not about the future. Hope is about the present. It obviously has to do with the future, but it is a virtue which is cultivated in the present. It fills the present with energy. It connects the two comings of Jesus so that we now part are participants in them. We are not just remembering one and believing the other. We are participating in the continuity of the comings. That is profound. Let, let, me, let me help you understand what he's getting at here. When, when Jesus, after he had risen from the dead and he was ascending up to heaven, there's this narrative in the scriptures where the disciples are all just watching him go up and they're just staring out into the sky. And then these, these angels come down and they say, why are your heads up in the sky? He's coming back. And they're kind of like, well, yeah, that's why we're looking. We want him to come back. And the angels are encouraging them to look at the world around them. Now, he wasn't, the angel didn't say, don't look up, look down like this. Just like when you look out at a horizon, you look out into the distance. What you see is the beauty of the sky, the depth of the blue and the clouds and a sunset. And you also see the beauty of the landscape, the land that is in front of you. And you see both what is to come and what is in front of you in one frame. That is what he's talking about here when he talks about hope. We are participating in the continuity of the comings. That yes, Jesus has come and the kingdom of God has been initiated in his coming. That he has made all things new and yet it is also a not yet. There is more to come. That he is coming to return. And the question is, really, as, uh, uh, what does it look like for us to put our hope in the fullness of that landscape, in the continuity of the comings? Our hope must go beyond that which disappoints. And Paul put that language to what it is that we hope for, hope that does not disappoint. Romans chapter 5, let's take a look at, at how he unpacks it. This is the invitation that we have to hope. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Do you see what he's starting with here? He's starting with this focus, this emphasis on the person of Jesus Christ. Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. There is something foundational about putting our hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm emphasizing that because it is the precursor to a verse that if you've been reading the scriptures for a while, that we love. It's this. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confidence, our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with this love. 
That's, that's the part of this passage that maybe some of us are familiar with, right? The one maybe you get a tattoo of because it's very life-giving. However, the precursor to that is the fact that our faith, our hope is in a person, in Jesus, in the one who is able to respond to you. The scriptures say there is nothing that, he, that we experience that he has not already experienced. No depth of despair or pain or heartache. No betrayal. Nothing that we could possibly experience that he has not already experienced. And this invitation into hope, this invitation to claim the hope of Jesus is not an invitation to disregard the pain and the suffering. Jesus didn't do that. He hung on the cross and he quotes one of the most profound poems of lament in the Hebrew scriptures. And there is no way to the other side of our pain, of our despair, of our suffering, except through it, guys. There's no way around it. We could try to Netflix our way around it, but it will catch up. My wife uses a, a, a terrific metaphor of how it's like if you take a balloon and you squeeze part of the balloon, what happens? Another part of the balloon pops out, Right? And we can try to ignore our way through our sadness and through our despair, but there is no way to the other side except through it. But we are invited to process that hardship with God. We are invited to experience the hope of Christ. We rejoice too when we run into problems and trials because we know that they help develop us. This hope will not lead to disappointment. And I'll tell you this, friends, um, you know, there's a lot of brokenness and heartache in the world. And, and God is not going around causing that hardship. He's not causing that suffering. Suffering exists in the world because the world is broken. You know, the very first time I preached here, like a couple of years ago, I shared this example with you about how, uh, uh, you know, when my kids would come home from school and they were feeling hurt and they were feeling like the kids made fun of them or left them out of a game or something at school, they would come home and they would just cry. And, and even though I'm their dad, I didn't cause that pain. That happened because the world is broken. And yet what I have the opportunity to do and what they have the opportunity to do is for us to come toward each other and I can get down on one knee and I can hold them and I can tell them what's true about them, who God says that they are. And this is the invitation of hope that we are welcomed into, that God will make all things new and that God is in fact in the process of doing it. This, this Christmas season speaks to that more than anything else. That our hope is not in the things that we tend to put our hope in. Our hope is not in a political system. Our hope is not in the government. The scriptures say that the government will rest on his shoulders. Not on yours. Not on mine. That the hope of Jesus Christ is that he is making all things new. In the language of C.S. Lewis, Aslan is on the move. Right? No Narnia fans out there? Not a one? <laughs> Our hope, no matter what happens, is that we are not alone. Hope sees the future and it fuels the present. Every time you look out at a beautiful painting, or if you go out this afternoon and you stand outside your house and you look out into the sky and you see the land and you see the sky, I think we have a blue sky today, and you see them both, be reminded, friends, it is a picture, it is a picture of the hope that is available to us, 
that there is hope in this world and there is hope in the not yet. And that hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ who loves you and gave himself for you and invites you not to bottle up your hardship and despair, but to bring that to him in the most colorful seat 29E language that you can come up with. To bring that hardship to him. And he writes says, heaven is the place where God is storing the earth's future. I love that. That you see the beauty of what is to come and you see the goodness of what God is doing now as those two things come together. So how do we do it? We'll close with this. I think there's a few practices that we can engage together in as a family to walk through this. What are some of those things? I would say this. It starts with this. We can name our feelings and share them with God. I think it's far too easy for us to say, if, if I was the guy in seat 29E, oh, Continental knows how bad this seat is. Let me just tell them what I need. And we are far too prone to approach God that same way. He already knows how I'm feeling. He already knows all the despair. So why do I need to say it? That's not the way Jesus did it. And, and, and as these poets were, were, were writing these beautiful poems in the Psalms that then became part of the canon of Scripture inspired by the Spirit to encourage us, it wasn't done where it was ignored and it went straight to God deliver me. God, you know, remove seat 29E. It didn't go straight to that. There's in fact articulation of that hurt and that hardship. And we are invited to name our feelings and share them with God. It does, it's not going to be as poetic as Psalm 22. It's not going to be even as poetic as seat 29E. But it's true and it's real and it's not just tolerated by God. It's welcomed. It's invited. He seeks it from us. And we can take a step toward that. We can let others into our journey. So in Psalm 22, it goes on to say, after verse 19, which is where we stopped, if you keep reading tonight, uh, it goes on to say that uh, David goes back to what he calls the assembly. He goes back to the people that were journeying with him and he celebrates with them, this God of deliverance. And, and the only reason that they could celebrate with him is because they were already in it with him in the difficulty of his despair. They were already in it with him in the challenge of his suffering. And we now are welcome to do the same, to let others into our journey. We are a family here. We have the privilege of bearing the presence of Jesus to one another. So yeah, when I feel like, oh God, where are you? God, I don't feel or see your presence. And sometimes it's not for a lack of trying, right? It's a dark night of the soul where you just feel like, I want to feel your presence, God. I want to be near to you, but where are you? We bear the presence of Jesus to one another through one another. And when we let others into our journey, we create the space for that, guys. It's amazing. Every hug that you experience from someone who loves Jesus and loves you is an experience of God's presence and his faithfulness and his love and his care for you. Would we allow people into our journey? It's going to help us process our despair and it's going to help us lean into the hope that is available to us. And finally... Would we open ourselves to the presence and promises of Jesus? What are the promises of Jesus? That he is God with us. 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He, he goes on here, he says, uh, in, in that same uh, portion of the scriptures, Jesus talks about how he is promising the presence, his presence to us through the Holy Spirit. And if you were here, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the last time I was up here. What is it going to look like for us to believe the power of the Spirit working in us and then for us to do our part, which is creating the conditions for the Spirit to move within us? And so much of this is part of that, naming our feelings and sharing them with God, letting others into our journey and creating the space for this God who always keeps his promises to fill us with hope of a better future. Trust in Jesus as our hope is a choice that we make in obedience. And guys, I know it's not an easy one. If I made it sound easy, I would say skip over the hardship, leap over it, and go straight to the hope. But there's no way there except through the suffering. But we can suffer together, and we can experience the hope of Jesus together. So I would love to, to just pray this prayer over one another. Um, if you'd humor me, I would love to just say it together. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. We're praying for the person next to us, in the row behind us, in the row in front of us. Let's say this together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's take that in and say that to a few more people that are around us. Pray that over one another. Let's say it together again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we are so grateful that you are the God of hope. We are so grateful that you are the God of hope that fills us with joy, fills us with your peace as we put our trust in you. And as a result, God, we overflow with the hope and the continuity of the two comings and the beauty of this landscape that looks to the sky and looks to what is to come and looks to the earth in the kingdom that has already been initiated here on earth as it is in heaven. God, what a gift. God, would we experience more of the richness of your hope? Would we experience it through one another? Would we experience it straight from your heart to ours as we put words to our hardship, as we put words to our despair? Would we invite you in to our hearts and lives in ways we never have before this holiday season? We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.